Okay. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Well, the last time that I was up here and had the privilege to teach, we, we looked at Jesus' last week on earth. And uh, we looked at how those unique events that happened in the last week of his life revealed his kingship. And we, we also looked at this idea that you, sitting in your seat right now, you can view Jesus through any lens that you choose to. But if we recognize Scripture as the inspired Word of God, we have to recognize that God declares that the correct way to see Jesus is as King. That's the only way to see Him. So you can sit in your chair and you can choose to view Him however you want to, but the Word of God says that the only correct way to view Jesus is as King. And Dale talked about last week that we went to Bonnaroo. He wanted me to say just a few words about that. And so we had a chance to share with what I would call millennials. Uh, I don't know if I have that correct terminology for that age demographic, but 20 to 25 was probably the majority of the people there. Uh, if you had to stretch that out, 20 to 30. It's, it was the vast majority of people there. And the predominant takeaway for me at that experience was that there were thousands and thousands of people present who recognized themselves as king. Thousands and thousands of people that recognized themselves as king. And here's the interesting thing about that. When you think about king and you think about you think about authority, and so you think about people tend to want a position of power so that they can basically hold that over, over other people, right? I want to be in a position of authority so I can tell you what to do. But that wasn't the vibe that I got at Bonnaroo. There were thousands and thousands of people that wanted to be their own king. They didn't really care what anybody else did. They didn't want control over other people. They just wanted complete control over themselves. So the common sentiment of, of everybody that we talked to was, I desire to live a certain way, and I should be entitled to live that certain way, and you, you can do whatever you want to do. Here's the catch. As long as it doesn't infringe on what I want to do. Right? Don't step on my toes. But you live your life, I'm going to live my life. And so I don't want to really spend too much time on that whole Bonnaroo experience. It was an experience I do... Highly encourage next year uh, a, a large portion of our congregation. If you have a chance to do that, it was a great experience. But I don't want to spend too much time on that outside of pointing out the fact that that, that experience only solidified what we just looked at in Scripture the last time I was up here. How you choose to see Jesus will shape the way that you live. How you choose to see Jesus is going to shape the way that you live. Because here's the deal. You can ignore Jesus... Or you can add him to your life on your terms, and essentially you can make him whatever you want him to be. Or you can give your allegiance to him and change your life to meet his standard. Those are your two options. And you can pretend that there's other options, but there's only two. I can make Jesus what I want him to be, I can ignore him, or I can give him my allegiance and change my life to meet his standard. Because here's the, what we kind of came to as a conclusion the last time I was up here is that Jesus is coming again. But he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a conquering king. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of the conquering king. See, as Christians, we're called to live a holy life. We are called to live a holy life. Leviticus 19.2, that's the standard. I've got you a little outline again. If you want to take a picture, uh, if people like this, I'll keep doing this. If people hate it, I'll quit. You don't say nothing, it's going to keep coming. All right, because some people enjoy it. Just take a picture, give you a chance to study on your own. But that's the standard that we're called to live. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God says, Listen, I'm holy, and if you're going to be my people, then you're going to be holy. That's the standard. That's the expectation. 
I'm fully aware that, that possibly this message, the last time that I was up here, this can cause some uncomfortableness. It can make people uncomfortable. It's a challenge. Ultimately, what it is, it's a challenge to ego, and it's a challenge to our affluent life. And you may sit there and think, Pastor, I'm not affluent. You don't know what you're talking about. No, I do know what I'm talking about. Because you go to multiple places across the world, guess what? You're affluent. Everybody in this congregation is affluent. All right? And so when we hear a message like this, it steps on our toes because here's the truth. Nobody enjoys being told how to live their life. Nobody. That's a fact of life. Nobody enjoys being told how to live their life. So you can go home and you can be mad at the preacher, right? But I am never going to apologize for ruffling feathers if it's grounded in Scripture. All right? Dale says all the time, go at home and study on your own. Don't take my word for it. Don't take his word. Don't take Jed's word for it. Go home and study the Scripture yourself and see what it teaches you. Jesus Christ is to be fully recognized as our Savior because he willingly laid his life down on my behalf, on your behalf, to pay our sin debt. That work that was accomplished on the cross so that we could be brought into right relationship with God the Father. Here's the truth about Jesus. He saved your life. Period. He saved your life. So if you think, I've used this example before, but if you think about this example, if, if I'm standing out, if I walked out to the street to get the mail, and I'm not paying attention, and I drift over into the right lane of the road, and, and Dale comes along and, and sees a car coming along, and he, come, and he comes along and he dives and he pushes me out of the way. He just saved my life. What, how, what am I going to feel after that? I'm going to feel some sense of indebtedness to him. Like, you saved my life. I owe you. Right? I owe you. And it's no different with Jesus. What he did on the cross is he saved your life, and you are indebted to him. That's what Scripture teaches. You are indebted to him. You are to recognize him as king, and you are to pledge your allegiance to him. So Jesus is not just your Savior, but he's the king, and you owe your life to him. So this morning I want to do a couple things. I want to try to expound on, on the last messages that I had up here, and I also want to build on what Pastor Dale taught on at Pentecost. So I want to give you a picture of Jesus as king in the Old Testament. Because it's important for us to recognize the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that this Bible that we read, that this Bible that we adhere to is one huge, long, connected story. Right? It's not different pieces that are chopped up and just thrown together in one book. It's all connected, and it all points to Jesus. So I want to show you a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Secondly, I want to give you some encouragement. So the last time I was up here, the more I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know what? We got the picture of Jesus riding on a horse. He's got a sword, and he's ready to slay. And you probably left here maybe a little down. <laughs> so I want to take that. You know, I'm presenting Jesus as king. He is to be your king, and I want that to encourage you. And I'm going to show you why. Uh, today. So in, in order to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 16. So there's not going to be a lot of jumping around if you want to take your Bible with me in Psalm 16. And so I'm going to read the whole Psalm, then we're going to break it down. It's going to be nice and simple. This is David speaking. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I simply today want to walk through this psalm. I want to show you a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament right here in Psalm 16. And I want to show you some encouragement that David provides. So if we start with verse 1. You need to recognize your position. We often think way too highly of ourselves. You need to recognize your position. David starts out by saying, Preserve me, O God. Here's an interesting note for you. This word used for God is the same word that Jesus used on the cross to call out to God. So it's the same word that that is used for God that David is crying out. It's the same word for God that Jesus used when he was crying out on the cross. It's used to recognize a sense of great weakness in calling out to an almighty God who is the omnipotent helper of all his people, who is in charge and in control of all things. I recognize who I am, and in this moment, I am completely helpless. And I recognize who you are, God, and I call out to you, preserve me, take care of me. See, David recognized his true position in life. He's in a bind, and he recognizes that God is where he has to run to. God is his refuge. So church, do we see God in the same light? Do we see God as our refuge? Do we recognize our true position in life? If you go to verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is the foundation of this psalm. And if you notice in your Bible, you've got two separate places where he says, Lord. He says, I say to you, Lord, you are my Lord. Well, if you look, most likely in your Bible, something interesting stands out. This first Lord, I say to you, Lord, is in all capitals. It's all caps. Then he says, you are my Lord, and it's only capital L. What's going on here? Here's what's going on here. This first Lord, all caps, is the same word as Yahweh. It's used over 6,800 times in the Bible. And all it means is the great I am. You go back to Exodus, how did God reveal himself to Moses? He said, I am. It's the same word. The creator God. David is calling out to God and he is recognizing God. You are the great I am. You are the creator of all things. And he goes on and he says, you are my Lord. Now if you read that in English and you just glance over it, well, David's just said the same thing twice. No, he hasn't. He first says, you are the great I am. You are the creator God, and you are my Adonai. Used over 300 times in Scripture. He says, you are my sovereign. You are my master. You are my king. So David recognizes God as creator and and king and says, God, nothing good comes outside of you. Nothing good comes apart from you. See, David's joy comes from God as the king. He doesn't just worship God as creator, but he pledges his allegiance to him as king. David recognizes his life is not his, and his followers of Christ were to recognize the same thing. My life is not my own. I am not the captain of my own ship. I've been bought with a price, 
And that price was Christ's death on the cross. And so to him I owe all allegiance as king. So here's the question that we're posed with today. Do we recognize God as Yahweh? Do we recognize God as a creator God, but not as Adonai, but not as our king? You've noticed a couple things in Scripture, and, and we're taking a, a specific approach this morning. And if you notice in Scripture, when you're dealing with, with individuals, and you were speaking about the gospel, and so we experienced this to some extent in Bonnaroo, but when you're speaking to, to those about the gospel, you can, there's two different approaches you can take. And you see these two different approaches in Scripture. One's found in Acts 2, and one's found in Acts 17. So Dale just spoke on Pentecost, and we see Peter stand up and preach his great sermon on, on Pentecost in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, Peter does not take time to, un, to, to unpack who God is. Because who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a whole crowd of Jews. And it's understood these people know who God is. So, so Peter doesn't take the time to explain who God is. But if you fast forward and you look in Acts chapter 17, Peter is speaking to a bunch of Gentiles. He's speaking, speaking to a bunch of pagans. And he has to begin at the very beginning. And he has to, before he can talk about Jesus, he has to explain who God is. That's the same situation we were in in Bonnaroo. If you walk around and you talk to young people today, that's the same situation you're in the vast majority of the time. They don't know who God is. They didn't grow up in a home that, where God was taught. They have no clue about the, the definition, the true definition of God. They do not know who God is. They might think they have an idea. But you can't stroll up to somebody and start talking about Jesus if they have no clue who God is. This morning we're taking the other approach because I'm, I'm, maybe this is a big assumption, but I'm, I'm taking the position that we, we are very clear on who God is. Right? So, so we're starting with that premise. You can't expect, if you hear anything today, I want you to hear this. You can't expect God to do what his word says he can do without giving him ownership. You can't do it. This book makes it very clear that God is a God of promises and that he's capable of unspeakable things. But you can't expect God to do what the word says he can do if you don't give him ownership. You can use a lot of different illustrations for that. There's a lot of mechanics in town that can do crazy things with cars. And you think that the car is beyond the point of return and they can fix it. But they ain't going to sneak up in your driveway and fix the car. They're not going to do it. You have to give them the car and say, here, this is my car, but I'm giving it to you because I want you to fix it. They're not... They're not climbing under the, through the door or climbing through a window into the garage while you're asleep and fixing the car because it's not their car. So if you want God to work in your life, if you want God to do in your life what the book says he can do, you have to give him ownership. You have to pledge allegiance to him. So maybe you ask the question, all right, well, if, I, if you're talking about changing my whole life. You're talking about giving all my allegiance to Christ the King. So if I do that, what happens next? Do I, do I just become this miserable slave? You know, because I kind of like being in charge of my own ship, and you're telling me just to, to give all authority and control to somebody else. So what happens? Well, I want to show you what happens. I want to show you the encouragement that comes 
through David. And if, if we go to verses 3 and 4, David says, it's For the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So what's David doing here? He's, he's putting on full display two types of people. He says, listen, there's two ways that you can choose to live your life. And I've got them marked out right here. Two ways that you can live your life. There are those people who pledge their allegiance to God, and there are those who don't. David starts with the first category, those who pledge their allegiance to God. He's saying, listen, as for the saints in the lands, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He says, listen, these are the people that we share the same allegiance. This is my team. These are the individuals who are after the glory of God. These are not simply churchgoers. These are people who are after the glory of God. Last time we looked at several of the commandments of God that have been charged to believers. These people that David speaks about are the ones that strive to fulfill what their king commands. It's total allegiance. And David delights in his people, and so should we. As a church, as Plant Grow Harvest, as we seek to impact our community, the more that our fellowship consists of these people, the more that other people will be drawn in. The more other people will be changed. He goes to verse 4 and he says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So David says, hey, there's two paths. There's one, you can pledge all your allegiance to God. These are the excellent people. Or there are people who don't. And he says, those who run after other gods, th these are the people who at best place God as secondary to other pursuits. Or at worst, who run from God intentionally. See, we have a tendency, we got a bad tendency to classify these individuals. But notice that Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture says there's two categories. There ain't ten. There's two. And all of these different types of people that we classify have something in common. God isn't first and most certainly isn't the king of their life. And notice what David says about these individuals. He says their sorrows will multiply. There's no joy here. And there never will be. See, whatever these people are chasing, it's never going to be enough. And it will never provide fulfillment. These individuals can't expect God to bless their lives based on the path that they're living. Because the path that they're living will result in eternal judgment. Again, notice there's no third option here. David only lists two types of people. Those who place their allegiance to the king and those who don't. There's, there's not any of this, well, he was a good man. There's not any of that. There's a man that pledges his allegiance to the king, and there's a man who doesn't. David's note here in verse 4 about these people that run after other gods is the only hint of sadness in this whole psalm. It's almost like he's grieving over these individuals because they just don't get it. They don't understand the immense joy that comes from offering your allegiance to the king. Verse 5 and through 7, David's going to get riled up here. He's going to get cranked up. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. He says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. 
He says, God is my chosen portion in my cup. My God is a promise keeper. He always provides. He always preserves me. He's in complete control of my welfare. He satisfies my hunger and my thirst. This is the foundation of David's confidence in God. He's a promise-keeping God. And this is similar to what we see from Paul in Philippians 1.6 when Paul says, I'm sure of this. He doesn't say, I got a good hunch. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, God is a promise-keeping God. In verse 6, David's talking about the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. He's talking about boundaries and instruction. See, the world often looks at the boundary lines of Christianity and is, and is terrified of being boxed in. Oh, you're telling me I've got to follow these rules. You've got to tell me I've got to live a certain way. The opposite is true. And that's what David is saying. He says, these boundary lines, these instructions, they fall in pleasant places. This is where true freedom is found. God desires me to have an abundant life. That's John 10.10, 10, the words of Jesus himself. He said, my joy is found here within these boundary lines. God's boundaries and instruction lead to pleasure. That's what David says. He says, you're not getting boxed in. He's not, you're not getting backed into a corner. He said, God desires you to live this way because this is the way to abundant life. In verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. David makes it clear that God instructs him and that he's grateful for it. The counsel of our king is good for us as it leads to true fulfillment. See, our ways lead to suffering and death. Dale spoke about that last week. There's a way to man, and it leads to death. Translation, I got a great idea. No, you don't. You think it's a great idea, but it's going to lead to death. The counsel of our king is what leads to true fulfillment. So David's painted a very clear picture of two distinct lives, one that recognizes God as creator and king and one who fails to recognize this. And if you want to do a little study on your own, this is very similar to what we see in Psalm 1. But I want you to pay attention to what David says in verse 8 because it's the climax in this psalm and it's paramount to what Scripture is teaching us here. Okay, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, not sometimes, not when I get a chance, always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David's saying, God is always with me, he's at my right hand, he's a God who keeps his promises, and I'm placing my allegiance to him, I'm living my life in this manner because it provides true freedom, complete fulfillment, and here's the best part, because of this, I will not be shaken. Here's the main question I want to propose to you today. A handful of questions. Can you say this? Can we say this? How many in this room allow ourselves to be shaken? How many of us have financial issues that cause us to be shaken? How many of us have marital problems or relationship problems that cause us to be shaken? How many of you have employment issues or workplace issues that cause you to be shaken? How many of you have encountered illness that causes you to be shaken? Here's the big one. How many people in this room today have not placed their lives in the hands of the king, have not pledged their allegiance to the king? And if you're honest and you face reality, your lack of a spiritual life causes you to be shaken. I know this is a reality. I talked to a former player of mine who told me one time, he said, man, when I was, ever since I was 12 years old, I was terrified of dying. Terrified of it. And I said, well, how do you handle that? 
what do you, what do you deal with that? And I was kind of sharing with him, and, you know, how do you deal with that? Well, I just kind of push it in the back corner of my mind and try not to think about it. So this kid's, right now, this kid is 23 years old. So for the last 12 years, roughly, he just pushes that to the back of his mind. Why? Because it shakes him to his foundation. Do we allow ourselves to be shaken? All of these situations that I just outlined, and there's, there's hundreds more, but all of these various situations can be summed up in a sense of selfishness and pride in this simple idea that I can fix it or I can change it. I can find my own happiness. I can find my own joy. I can find my own peace. But what happens when we become truly helpless? We don't know what to do. That's not what David is saying. David said, I know what to do. I know where to run because I keep my God constantly before me. He is at my right hand, and because of this, I shall not be shaken. He goes on in verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or you will not abandon my soul to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's saying, I found my happiness. I found my joy. I found my peace when I placed my life in allegiance to my Creator and my King. And because of this, my heart is glad. Because of this, my whole being rejoices. Because my God will not abandon me. In your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So maybe you ask this question. This is a psalm, man. This was written around a thousand years B.C. I thought you were talking about Jesus. What does this have to do with Jesus? Let's go to Acts 2. Dale just talked about this on Pentecost. I want you to listen to the words of Peter's sermon. Acts 2, 21 to 36. I know that's a lot, but hang with me. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, listen to this, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known, known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Where have we heard that before? Peter's pulling this straight out of Psalm 16. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to death, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus that God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So David pulls this, or Peter pulls this direct 
quote from David from Psalm 16. And Peter is teaching that David declared, that David said, I was expecting Jesus. I was expecting assistance from him. He was at my right hand. He is at a place of assistance. He's my advocate who affords affords me help. Peter goes on to clarify, David foresaw the resurrection of Christ. He foresaw his own resurrection as a result of Christ's willingness to die on the cross as a sacrifice so that his sins would be wiped clean and he would be restored into right relationship with God. Peter's saying this. He's saying David saw this a thousand years ago. This Jesus whom you crucified, he's the Messiah and God has made him king. And Scripture tells us that when Peter said this to the crowd, it says they were cut to the heart. So the question is, church, when we hear this today, are we cut to the heart? Why do we continually seek after our own way? It's nothing new. Go back into the book of Isaiah 53.6. says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone in this room is seeking happiness, joy, and peace. And Scripture makes it clear that as a believer, life's not going to all be roses. Dale talked about that last week. You don't, you don't accept Christ and now your life is just perfect. That's not how it happens. However, as a believer, why do you allow yourself to be shaken by worldly things? In order to find true fulfillment, you have to die to self and you have to pledge your allegiance to the king. So you go back to those same scenarios. If you're having financial issues, lay it at the feet of Jesus and live a life of devotion to the king. If you're having marital or relationship issues, lay it at the feet of Jesus and live a life of devotion to the king. If you're having employment issues, lay it at the feet of Jesus and live a life of devotion to the king. If you're dealing with illness, whether it's yours or somebody else's, lay it at the feet of Jesus and live a life of devotion to the king. You name the issue... You want to know the answer? Lay it at the feet of Jesus and live a life of devotion to the King. Most importantly this morning, if you haven't pledged allegiance and given your life to Christ today, do it today. Seek the King while He still may be found. And it all comes full circle back to what I told you before. If you hear anything today, I want you to be encouraged. David says, listen, I pledge my allegiance to the King and that is where my joy comes from. But church, you can't expect God to do what his word says he can do without giving him ownership of your life. I want to challenge you. Begin to live that life today. Pledge your allegiance to the king so you can proclaim just as David did. I have set the Lord always before me. Not sometimes, not on Sundays, not when I get the chance or when I feel like it. I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The things of the world won't shake me because I know what my future holds. And I know who holds it. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for my sins so that I can be reconciled to God the Father. My eternity is secure. And all these other things that get in the way, that allow me to be shaken, they ultimately don't mean very much at all. Pledge your allegiance to the king so that you can say, I shall not be shaken. Let's pray.